Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. In Delaware today, it's no deal for the Hunter Biden plea agreement. A federal judge refused to rubber stamp the deal, citing concerns over confusing constitutional issues. And the White House getting challenged on what seemed to be a shift of position about President Biden's involvement in his son's business dealings. What the press secretary says. A scary scene in New York City this morning as witnesses describe a high-rise crane catching fire before falling to the ground. A packed Congress today as three witnesses testify about their first-hand encounters with unidentified aerial phenomena, otherwise known as UFOs, which they say is being suppressed by the government. Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas facing heated questions from Republican lawmakers over his handling of the southern border. And the Federal Reserve raises interest rates again, now pushing borrowing costs to their highest since the global financial crisis. No deal for the Hunter Biden plea agreement today after a federal judge questioned the constitutionality of the deal. NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards has more details. The plea agreement between President Biden's son Hunter Biden and the Justice Department fell apart on Wednesday after Judge Mary Ellen Noreka questioned the specifics of the deal. Hunter was expected to plead guilty to two misdemeanor tax counts of willful failure to pay federal income tax as part of the deal to avoid jail time on a felony gun charge. Prosecutors were planning to recommend two years probation and to wipe the gun charge from Hunter's record. But Noreka, a Trump appointee, was concerned about the constitutionality of the deal. According to the Associated Press, the judge said it seemed like the parties just wanted to rubber stamp the agreement. A key question was whether or not prosecutors planned to continue their investigation and if more charges were expected in the future. Prosecutors confirmed that Hunter was still under investigation but didn't offer any details. Noreka gave both sides 30 days to explain why she should accept the deal. Hunter pleaded not guilty to the tax charges. In a separate twist to the case, the House Ways and Means Committee filed a brief late Tuesday asking the court not to accept the plea deal. Contained in their submission was information related to IRS whistleblower testimony. But shortly after their motion was filed, a court clerk received a call requesting that sensitive grand jury, taxpayer and social security information be kept under seal. The clerk said the lawyer identified herself as an attorney for the Ways and Means Committee. But she was, in fact, a lawyer with the defense team. Attorneys for the defense said there was a misunderstanding. Judge Noreka threatened to sanction the law firm. But then she temporarily placed the documents under seal. The defense had until the close of business today to explain why the documents should remain under seal. Meanwhile, House Republicans are continuing their probe of the Bidens. Hunter's associate, Devin Archer, is slated to testify to the House Oversight Committee on July 31st. In a social media post on Monday, committee chairman James Comer said, we look forward to speaking with Devin Archer on Monday about Joe Biden's involvement in his family's business affairs. He told Fox News on Tuesday why it's important to get Archer's testimony. So uh, Devin Archer would know more about particularly Burisma than anyone we could talk to because Devin Archer was on the board of Burisma with uh, Hunter Biden. 
Archer was sentenced to one year in prison in 2022 for defrauding a Native American tribe. He and others used Hunter Biden's name to convince the tribe to invest assets. Emails show Hunter was involved with Archer's firm, but Hunter's lawyer said he was unaware of the scheme. Comer has said that investigators obtained evidence that the president was in communication with some of Hunter's business associates. He said Burisma, that Ukrainian energy company, is at the center of everything in their investigation. Steph? Thanks, Arlene. And as controversy grows, the White House today getting pressed on a shift in messaging about President Biden's involvement in his son's business dealings. NTD's Iris Tao has more on the administration's latest reaction. The White House today sidestepped most questions about Hunter Biden's court appearance while saying this about the president's son. Hunter Biden is a private citizen. The president, the first lady, they love their son and they support him as he continues to rebuild his life. But the White House today got pressed on what seemed to be a change in narratives about President Biden's involvement in Hunter's business dealings. And President Biden has previously said that he had never talked to Hunter about his overseas business dealings. But on Monday, the White House press secretary used a slightly different wording. The president ha was never in business with his son. I just don't have anything else to add. And of course, never been in business versus never talked about it could mean two very different things. And that prompted House Republicans to say on Wednesday. This rigorous oversight has certainly rattled the White House, who suddenly has shifted its public position surrounding Joe Biden's knowledge and involvement in Hunter Biden's foreign business dealings. But a White House press secretary today defended her previous comments, though without giving a clear yes or no to questions about. Which statement is true or is this semantics and they're both true? Uh, as I stated on Monday, when I was asked this question multiple times, nothing has changed. But can you say specifically that the president did not have discussions of any kind with Hunter about his business dealings? Nothing has changed. I don't have anything at, to add to what I stated on Monday. And this new scrutiny over the White House's description of President Biden's involvement comes amid whistleblower allegations that President Biden had repeatedly talked to Hunter's business partners over the phone. And that whistleblower is set to testify on Monday. Reporting from the White House, Iris Tao, NTD News. And earlier today, I spoke with former federal prosecutor Cully Stimson for his analysis of today's hearing. Stimson is now a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Let's see that now. Kelly Stimson, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for coming on. Judge Narika did not accept Hunter's plea deal today. As a former federal prosecutor, what's your analysis of her reasoning? Well, we haven't seen the transcript yet, but typically, uh, and what we've seen from this, from reporting, is that she has to make sure that both sides have a knowing understanding of what the agreement is, understand sort of the four corners of the agreement and that each side understands the ramifications of the plea as written out on the plea document. And I think from her questioning of the DOJ lawyers and then Biden's lawyers, it was very clear to her that they were not on the same page and that's why it took uh, the course it did. Now, plea dues do fall apart. And I've seen that happen at the state level and the federal level where I've practiced in both, uh, but it's rare. Uh, but I think the judge was right to, to sort of try to poke at this agreement to see whether there are any holes, and she found a lot of holes. Yeah, so could you break down for us what was in the plea deal itself? Yeah, so, you know, basically the plea deal was to plead to these two, you know, tax fraud counts and then 
plead to uh, lying on a form to get a gun, where he failed to admit that he was a druggie, uh, and he was going to get diversion for the gun charge. Well, that's pretty low sentence. Uh, in fact, it's unheard of, and the judge even commented on that. But the, I think the thing that really upended the apple cart here was when she asked the DOJ, hey, are there any other charges that could potentially be out there? Because I see this sort of wraparound arrangement, that's what lawyers call it, sort of a wraparound deal that would preclude the government from going forward on anything else. And the government's like, oh, well, yeah, judge, uh, by the way, uh, we are still investigating him for failing to register as a foreign agent. And that investigation is ongoing. And you can imagine the criminal defense attorney's like, huh, what? And then having the discussion with the client. And that's when the whole thing starts uh, crumbling. Right. So the hearing today was fairly dramatic, as you point out. And he was poised to plead guilty and then ended up pleading not guilty to the, the charges against him. So how do you see the way that the hearing unfolded? Well, I think the hearing unfolded the way I hoped it would, and I certainly would have unfolded that way had I been the judge, and I was a judge for five years. I mean, you want to quiz the counsel in front of you to make sure everyone's on the same exact page and understands and has a knowing and voluntary waiver of his rights, so he pleads guilty. And here, I think the judge not only had a written plea agreement, that she was going to quiz anyway, but then saw two whistleblowers testify, saw all the other blowback that was happening. Uh, and although that's not part of the court record, she's a human being. She can see that there's more to this deal than really meets the eye. And she can see that especially the DOJ is not being particularly forthcoming about all the other moving parts that are out there. So I think she was entirely appropriate in her line of questioning. And now the question is, you know, is it just paused? And are the parties going to try to get something back together on paper and narrow the focus of the plea? Is the plea completely off? I think all options are on the table going forward. I think if I was a Biden, and not just Hunter Biden, I wouldn't sleep well tonight. Uh, because uh, with a ongoing investigation into whether he failed to register as a foreign agent, and of course, everyone's presumed innocent until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. But if that continues, and that shows there's some there there, and there are other parties related to the money that came to Hunter uh, through the activity he had as a foreign agent, uh, that could lead to other people, up to and including the president. So I think some people aren't going to have a good night's sleep tonight and the future nights if the DOJ goes after this and then the House Judiciary Committee and the Oversight Committees keep digging to get to the bottom of this. So I think this is not a good scenario for the Biden family. All right. We will have to wait and see how this unfolds. Thank you so much, Kelly Stimson, former federal prosecutor and senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And a scary scene in New York City this morning as a crane operating hundreds of feet above the ground caught fire and partially fell to the ground. NTD's Dave Martin has more. We're here at 10th and 40th right near the Hudson Yards where earlier today a crane operating above that 45-story building there caught fire and partially collapsed falling onto the building across the street, a 55-story building skyscraper before falling to the ground. Now six injuries were reported. None of them fortunately were serious. 
Now, the crane was lifting approximately 16 tons of cement when the engine caught fire at approximately 7.25 a.m. The operator tried unsuccessfully to extinguish the flames before the rest of the cabin was engulfed. Fortunately, he was able to escape before the fire weakened the structure, causing it to partially swing across the street, striking the skyscraper located at 555 10th Avenue. It then fell to the ground, causing quite a commotion. It's like boom, like, you know, and as I was walking, I saw it fall, the crane, and it was like about 100 feet away from me. So you're like, is it actually coming? And then it was like, it's coming down. And so you're like, turn around and you're running and everyone around you is running too. And you look behind you and there's just like, hits the middle of the street and like, like all this debris is coming. Of the six injuries, four were firefighters and two civilians from when the debris hit the ground though fortunately none was serious, a fortunate fact not lost on Mayor Eric Adams. As you see from the debris on the street, uh, this could have been much worse. Uh, we are extremely fortunate, number one, that we were not during the busy, busy time of the day. Meanwhile, the 55-story skyscraper that had hit 555 10th Avenue had to be evacuated. Witnesses in that building described a scary scene just after waking up. Literally 30 seconds after, we heard like a really loud crash and debris falling from the window. And then we heard a second crash, which I'm assuming was a crane hitting the ground afterwards. So it sounded like the, a light, the lightning hit like our building and it was just a loud thunder sound. Now residents told me this afternoon that they have not been able to re-enter their building, but we're grateful that no injuries were reported on the ground. I'm Dave Martin for NTD News. And there are now reports that a total of 11 or possibly 12 people were injured, three of them firefighters, and there were no fatalities. Turning to news from D.C., skepticism of the government's handling of unidentified aerial phenomena, or UAPS, on full display in Congress, halls packed with interested citizens. NTD's Melina Weiskup was at today's oversight subcommittee hearing, where three witnesses shared their first-hand encounters with UAPs that have been suppressed or ignored. A lot to take in from these witnesses, but one important point is that even when they do encounter UAPs or UFOs, there's no acknowledgement or legitimate way to report them. That's even when they're so close and possibly endangered by these encounters, as described by one of the witnesses, Ryan Graves, who's a former Navy lieutenant. He described a case where an object was flying within 50 feet of the aircraft he was in. Nothing tethering it to the ground. These sightings are not rare or isolated. They are routine. The stigma attached to UAP is real and powerful and challenges national security. It silences commercial pilots who fear professional repercussions. And another witness who's a former Pentagon intelligence officer who also worked on a UAP task force says that the government has likely had knowledge of non-human activity since the 1930s. Of a multi-decade uh, UAP crash retrieval and reverse engineering program. But like much of what we heard today, details of specific locations can't be publicly divulged. Yet we don't have access to it, that someone else is profiting from it. Uh, weapons projects that are unsanctioned or that we don't have oversight of, I mean, that's problematic. Honestly, I'm concerned that we're not utilizing this technology to the maximum extent possible. And Grush says he wants to share more classified information with lawmakers in the SCIF, which is a location here in Congress where they can discuss classified information. But so far, they faced pushback against this effort. Lawmakers say they're working on perhaps more whistleblower protection laws to encourage more witnesses like the ones here today to come forward with more information. Another congressman says that if they're denied 
the ability to continue this investigation targeting the money could be successful. Defund salaries, uh, agencies, and programs. And Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer introduced a bipartisan bill that would declassify UFO records, and he plans to introduce this as part of an amendment to the defense bill later this week. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. And next, Mayorkas is facing a storm from Republican lawmakers this morning over his border policies. NTD Sam Wong brings us the details on that. On Wednesday, Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee grilled Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas over his handling of the U.S. southern border. In the opening remark, Chairman Jim Jordan described the Biden administration's border policy as disastrous management. Mayorkas defended himself, saying that the border is not open and his policies are working. Our approach to managing the borders securely and humanely, even within our fundamentally broken immigration system, is working. Over the last few months, House Republicans have been gearing up to launch a potential impeachment proceeding against the secretary. They accuse Mayorkas of undermining the operational control of the southern border, encouraging illegal immigration and lying to Congress. Some Republican members on the committee told me that Mallorca's and the Biden administration have done very little to stop the influx of illegal immigrants. Well, the reality is very clear. It's that we have had a historic uh, level of illegal border crossings uh, since this administration began. We're talking about 5.6 million as well as 1.5 million uh, known gotaways. But I think the evidence is, is very clear that uh, they're padding the numbers a little bit right now redefining um, whether or not somebody was actually at the border and had contact with a border agent. The southern border has long been a battleground for partisan disputes. Just recently, the Biden administration sued Texas Governor Greg Abbott over a floating buoy barrier installed along the Rio Grande to deter illegal immigrants from crossing the river. Democrats on the committee praised Mayorkas, saying that the border situation is under control. Border crossings uh, are down right now, uh, so we should all be celebrating the work that they're doing. It's a tough job, right? Whatever Mallorcas did worked. That's what we should be talking about right now. Since the end of Title 42, the Biden administration has implemented new measures requiring border crossers to schedule interviews through the CBP-1 app. And all applicants must have records of asylum claims in other countries before reaching U.S. soil. Mallorcas insisted that illegal crossings at the southern border have dropped by more than half compared to the number prior to the end of Title 42. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Sam Wong, NTD News. Irish singer Sinead O'Connor has died at the age of 56. RTE, Ireland's public broadcaster, confirmed her death. No cause of death was immediately available. O'Connor's first album came out in 1987 but it was her sophomore album, I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got, that made her a world-famous singer. Her rendition of the Prince song, Nothing Compares to You, was a massive hit, rocketing to number one in 1990. Over the years, O'Connor was embroiled in controversy, once ripping up a photo of the Pope on Saturday Night Live. O'Connor, who was open about her struggles with addiction and mental health, is survived by her three children. Her 17-year-old son, Shane, died last year. And Oscar-winning actor Kevin Spacey has been cleared of all charges of sexual assault. A London jury has found him not guilty of nine accusations, including two against four men. But I would like to say that I'm enormously grateful to the jury for having taken the time to examine all of the evidence and all of the facts carefully before they reached their decision. 
and I am humbled by the outcome today. Spacey won Oscars for Best Actor in American Beauty and Best Supporting Actor in The Usual Suspects. The charges against him cover the period from 2004 to 2013. The Hollywood star was first accused of sexual assault in 2017 by actor Anthony Rapp. After the accusations came to light, Spacey was dropped from the TV drama House of Cards and removed from the movie All the Money in the World. He pleaded not guilty to all charges. The trial lasted more than three days. Today also marks his 64th birthday. And coming up, we speak with the Education Commissioner of Florida for clarification of the state's new controversial education guidelines. And the Alabama senator holding up military promotions says he won't back down before Congress goes to, into a month-long recess soon. He also says no one from the Biden administration contacted him to find a solution. Florida's Board of Education has approved new guidelines for teachers on how black American history should be taught, and it's drawing criticism. Vice President Kamala Harris in Florida on Friday called the updated standards revisionist history. In question in particular is one of the curriculum benchmarks, which says instruction includes how slaves developed skills which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit. Earlier today, I spoke with Florida's Education Commissioner Manny Diaz, Jr., to dig deeper. Commissioner Diaz, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for coming on. The sentence in question from the 216-page document is a benchmark clarification. For those of us who aren't familiar with academic standards documents, what is a benchmark clarification and how are they meant to be used? The benchmarks are a, a comprehensive uh, a study of African-American history. And the clarification is used to uh, talk about the nuances. In this case, talking about the resiliency and the will and the strength of individuals as these atrocities were going through through slavery, as these terrible things were happening. The story of the individual that needs to be told that through all of that figured out a way to persevere and acquire skills uh, that later on they were able to either buy their freedom or, or use them as they gained their freedom. So here's the sentence under attack. Instruction includes how slaves developed skills which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit. Could you explain more clearly what this means, perhaps with an example? As Dr. Will Allen, uh, one of the scholars that was on there, an African-American descendant of slaves himself, has pointed out, it, again, is this story of individuals that may have been blacksmiths or, or became blacksmiths throughout the atrocities that were being uh, put on them, owned by other people. I mean, the terrible, uh, ugliest part of our history and still able to persevere and show resiliency in using these skills to move forward, either to buy their freedom or to use them post-slavery and, and uh, acquire their freedom and use them during the time when they broke free from slavery. So since that's not how people are understanding the sentence, are you considering rephrasing it to make the meaning more clear? As Dr. William Allen has pointed out, who was involved in writing these benchmarks, he the nuance of the, the, the individual stories need to be told as part of the entire story, not an implication that slavery benefited the enslaved people, but showing the resiliency 
and, and the willpower and the perseverance of those individuals. We have to tell the stories of individuals that need to be told within the framework of the atrocities as all of this is going on. So next I'd like to look at who participated in drafting these standards. Yeah, we had a 13 member uh, work group made up of scholars and Florida educators uh, who delved into the benchmarks, deepening them. We had benchmarks that existed from 1994, but this is an expansion going deeper, covering the, the, the horrors that occurred during the passage of slaves coming over, the, the atrocities committed during, and the violence committed during plantation life and throughout slavery. And then it goes on to talk post-Civil War about the Jim Crow laws and the atrocities committed to African-Americans and the civil rights movement and the fight to earn their rights. All of the story is told, and this group of scholars worked for months uh, to delve into the individual details and talk about every single one of these issues without any varnishing. Now, the Florida Education Association has called the standards a disservice to students. So I'm just wondering, were teachers unions invited to participate in drafting them? Absolutely. The teachers union actually participated in five meetings. They were involved and, in, in fact, lauded the work uh, of the work group during one of the meetings. And again, they had uh, ample time to comment on this through the period that it was open. They had they were they were open meetings, open to the public and open to the union, and they participated. And then at the last minute, after going through all that, they decided to participate in this letter while not commenting or adding anything to the standards. Now, was there any debate over this point during the process of drafting the document? The, the meetings of the, of the work group were public and archived, and the, there was ample discussion where they reached a consensus on what standards and, and what were in there in the American history standards. All right, great. Thank you so much for your input, and thanks for joining us today. Manny Diaz, Jr., Education Commissioner of Florida. Thank you so much. Thank you. The lone senator holding up hundreds of military promotions says he'll not back down, even with Congress going into a month-long recession soon. Democrats accuse him of hurting military readiness. NTD's Arian Pazdar spoke with a retired colonel to learn more. Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville of Alabama is holding up the promotions of top military officials. On Wednesday, a representative for Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America asked Tuberville about his hold. But you're holding up people's pay raises, promotions, and livelihoods. Tuberville most likely referred to the almost 2 million service members, of which only 250 are affected by his hold. The senator wants the military to overturn a policy which funds travel and leave for military service members who get an abortion. The policy also applies to a service member whose spouse gets an abortion. While speaking to The Hill on Tuesday, Tuberville said he probably won't lift his halt before the five-week August Senate recess starting next week. Watch. No, I'm not going to change my mind. I'm, first of all, I've had z almost zero uh, communication with the White House. I mean, if, if they really cared about readiness and uh, the things that really need to be happening with our military, they'd change this back in five minutes and then send a bill down there to the floor and let Congress go through this. To talk about this and more, I spoke with retired Army colonel and author of The Nation Will Follow, John Mills. What does that tell you that the Biden administration allegedly isn't trying to find a solution here? Well, I mean, that's uh, pretty much says it all from the senator. 
One of the quickest way to resolve a stalemate like this is to reach, pick up the phone and give the senior staffer a call for uh, the senator and start working on a solution. It's as simple as that. This month, President Biden called Tuberville's hold irresponsible. Other Democrats are saying the senator's actions are hurting military readiness. Do you think that waiting five more weeks will affect military readiness? And if so, how? The simple answer is no. This is a, the senator is exercising their right to put a hold on these matters. Guess what? Uh, executive branch, this is part of the process. So respond to the concerns in the, uh, of the uh, legislative branch. Congress is scheduled to head into a five-week recess starting at the end of this week. Arian Pastar, NTD News. The Southern California Police Department executed a raid this morning, resulting in several arrests and the seizure of illegal substances and weapons. NTD's Christina Corona has more from Almonte. The Almonte Police Department conducted a series of raids targeting one San Gabriel Valley gang who is known for terrorizing the city and is connected with one specific gang member who took the lives of two of their officers last year. On Wednesday, several gang members were taken into custody in a multi-agency law enforcement operation that tied to the killing of Almani officers Michael Paredes and Joseph Santana. As family members, friends and colleagues were devastated by the killings, the Quiet Village street gang celebrated the murders. They celebrated through posters of the killer. They celebrated through tagging graffiti in honor of the murderer. And they did all this to further their reputation for intimidation and violence in the community. The Almani Police Department reached out to federal authorities to initiate the investigation of the Quiet Village Street Gang and their criminal activities. This morning, law enforcement officers fanned out across the San Gabriel Valley and arrested 11 defendants on federal and state charges. Most of these defendants were members or associates of the Quiet Village Street Gang. Others were members of the Whittier Vario Locos gang, which is an ally of Quiet Village. The indictment charges the gangsters with running a criminal enterprise which engaged in various different criminal acts, including murder, attempted murder, witness intimidation, drug trafficking, fraud, and illegal gambling. We spoke with the Almani police chief, Jake Fisher, who told us how the department prepared for this morning's raid in terms of intelligence gathering and planning. Well, it was led by then Chief Ben Lowry, who um, reached out to the FBI. The Almani police department has a um, FBI agent that works for our department, and we work together with many other agencies with the uh, San Gabriel Safe Streets Task Force, and that that connection that we automatically had and Chief Lowry's leadership at that time helped naturally flow this investigation very swiftly and quickly. Chief Fisher also tells us about challenges they face when conducting a raid involving dangerous criminals. Anytime you're dealing with a, a violent criminal street gang there are uh, obvious challenges. They have no respect for authority or good members of the community so that uh, is always dangerous and complex but uh, we were able to be very successful in, in this investigation and uh, came out to a, a good conclusion. With this raid, the Almani Police Department said they finally got justice for their two fallen officers. 
With the help of several law enforcement agencies, the Almani Police Department has just arrested several gang members, seized a variety of firearms and narcotics, therefore making Almani and surrounding cities a safer place to live, work, and visit. Christina Corona, NTD News, Almani. Coming up, the Federal Reserve raises interest rates again, now pushing borrowing costs to their highest since the global financial crisis. And California is expanding a pilot program to fight drug addiction. The solution? Gift cards and other incentives. Find out more after the break. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. A federal judge rejects the plea agreement between Hunter Biden and the Justice Department. The president's son then pleads not guilty to federal tax and gun charges. In New York City, a construction crane caught fire and collapsed near Hudson Yards. Twelve people were reportedly injured, including three firefighters and nine civilians. Witnesses tell a House subcommittee about their first-hand encounters with unidentified aerial phenomena, or UAPs. They say the government's suppressing or ignoring their reports and other info. The Federal Reserve raised interest rates by a quarter of a percentage point today, citing still elevated inflation as the reason. Fed officials are hinting at one more rate hike this year, according to their latest set of projections. NTD Business's Don Ma speaks with an investment officer for his analysis. And now here with me is David Hay, co-chief investment officer at Evergreen Gavacol. So, you know, we just had Powell's speech. Um, what's your first reactions? Let's start from there. I thought it was a yawner, to be honest with you. It wasn't all that exciting. I mean, the market was very prime for a quarter, and he did that. I think maybe the part that's a little disappointing to the the legions of bulls out there is that he's clearly keeping the, the possibility of future rate hikes on the table. And the market would love to hear that that's, that's not going to happen, that we're finally at the end and that the next moves are going to be down. And I think this is just another disappointment in that, although obviously it hasn't hurt financial market performance to have this just continuing tightening. And he did say very clearly, we are restrictive. And if anything, they're going to get more restrictive. And yeah. because he has been able to tighten as much as he has with unemployment still staying at 3.6% is really, frankly, remarkable. I mean, what about how Powell's language? Uh, how, do, how did that sound to you? I think it sounded more confident and relieved than it has in a while. I mean, it's it, things have been going pretty good for him. And it's been a while since he could say that. And this latest inflation number was was good. And growth is staying, you know, fairly resilient. I don't think it's as resilient as a lot of people believe when you look at things like even grocery store sales starting to disappoint. And even the high end. I mean, you can say, well, that's the low end. But at the high end with uh, you know, Louis Vuitton, LVMH, and, and Richemont uh, having disappointing numbers in the U.S. And I think there's a, a fair amount of evidence that the economy isn't all that great. But it's certainly, if it's recessionary, it's early recession. I would argue that you do have already a profits recession. That's not an argument, that's a fact. Industrial recession, a little bit more of an argument, but not much. We've got the GDI gross domestic income in recession. Now we've got a government tax receipt recession. That's a lot of recession boxes that we could check off. So 
I personally think it's just a matter of time before these high interest rates do bite and bite harder than they have already. Yeah, you know, we do have to respect the lag effect. Um, so you're saying we haven't seen the full impacts yet of interest rates in the 5.25, 5.50 range. Absolutely not. I mean, it's 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 been a it's been a very aggressive hiking campaign, but it's also been very quick. So a lot of this stuff really hasn't fully impacted, and there's something like half of all the the, the, the private and public sector debt that's going to roll over in the next two years at 200 to 400 basis points higher rates. That's a big deal. You've already got a lot of floating rate corporate debt in America that's reset to the 10 to 12 percent range, and it was 5 percent not that long ago. So I think it's way too early for the uh, you know the Goldilocks camp to be doing a victory dance. Do you think it was a hawkish hike or a dovish hike? Uh, maybe mildly hawkish. Certainly wasn't dovish. And I don't, I don't think that the fact that he kept the door open for more rate hikes can be viewed as dovish. But I, I do think that there is this kind of constant disappointment that we're not to the end of the, the hiking cycle. And but again, with the data staying relatively healthy, it's it gives them cover to continue to be restrictive. So you're saying they're not done? Possibly, but I, I I do think that was one of the messages from today is that the odds somewhat favor another rate hike. I think you'll see that as the handicapping starts to hit in the next couple of days that, you know, that a September increase will be, you know, at least somewhere around a coin flip. All right. Thank you so much today, David. It was great hearing you. Thank you, Don. The government is taking on junk fees. For example, when a company tells you its product is $100 and halfway through buying it, you find out it's actually $150 because of a hidden so-called convenience fee. NTD's Colin Fredrickson takes a closer look at junk fees and how you can avoid them. Today's hearing is about protecting Americans from junk fees. Junk fees are hidden or unnecessary fees that companies are throwing at consumers all over America. They're found in many industries, such as banking, airlines, telecommunications, and real estate. Ms. Dixon is a single mother who found an online listing for an apartment <clears throat> in the fall of 2020. The advertisement said it rented for $1,400 per month. She didn't expect to be responsible for a package locker fee, a trash removal fee, a separate valet trash fee, a pest control fee, a technology package fee, an insurance fee, and a credit reporting fee. Lindsay Siegel provides free legal services to low-income families. She says that when Ms. Dixon called her organization, she was already paying $230 a month more than the original advertised price. Companies make it look like their prices are lower than their competitors' prices, but later on, after the junk fees are tacked on, the real price may be much higher. When consumers are shopping online or in person, they deserve to understand what a loan, a house, or a vacation will cost, and exactly what key terms they're agreeing to. At the same time, all businesses deserve to compete on an even playing field, where the price is the price with no hidden surprise fees. Pennsylvania Attorney General Michelle Henry says her office has been fighting these fees for decades. She successfully filed lawsuits against firms like Marriott for hitting travelers with so-called resort fees and Wells Fargo for charging rate lock extension fees. Other examples you should look out for. Bank overdraft fees. Banks make billions when customers accidentally withdraw more than what's in their accounts. 
free trials. Subscription services may offer a free trial, but don't tell you when that trial is about to end. Customers who forget to cancel end up paying every month. To deal with these fees, consumers should do their own research, read customer reviews, and read the fine print on any contracts. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. California is fighting drug addiction with gift cards. The state is expanding its pilot program to many counties, providing incentives to those dealing with addiction. NTD's David Lamb reports. California, in its fight against meth addiction, is using gift cards to reward people for staying sober. The state has expanded its pilot program to 24 counties, targeting major areas facing drug addiction and homelessness, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Los Angeles. California's Department of Health Care Services says eligible Medi-Cal beneficiaries will participate in a 24-week outpatient program, followed by six or more months of recovery support services. Now, individuals will earn motivational incentives in the form of low-denomination gift cards, with a retail value determined per treatment episode. The San Francisco Department of Public Health says they're expanding treatment options for people with stimulant use disorder. In Santa Clara, California, David Lamb, NTD News. Coming up, anti-child trafficking movie Sound of Freedom announces international release dates. A DHS whistleblower shares with NTD what he knows about child trafficking. And a TV producer comments on Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, praising the way the filmmaker portrays life during World War II. Oppenheimer's former home also happens to be for sale right now in the Bay Area. These stories and more after the break. The movie Sound of Freedom, which exposes child sex trafficking in America, is beating expectations at the box office. As the film prepares for international releases, NTD spoke with a DHS whistleblower about human trafficking. How many pedophiles you got? 288. The anti-child trafficking movie Sound of Freedom has generated over $120 million at the box office since its release in early July. The low-budget film is based on the life of Tim Ballard, a former agent at the Department of Homeland Security and the founder of Operation Underground Railroad, which is dedicated to rescuing kids from sex trafficking operations. Aaron Stevenson, a whistleblower who worked for the DHS, gave NTD his reactions to the negative coverage the film has received from legacy media. That's what shows you the shift of corporate media over the past, what, 10, 10 11 years now? It goes from this is a real thing to all of a sudden, no, you nut jobs, this is QAnon, don't pay attention, don't pay attention. It, that's how fast it shifted in just 10 years. Stevenson explains that criminal organizations exploit loopholes in America's asylum process. He said he's seen an unusual rise in the number of people trying to sponsor illegal immigrant children. And what I saw when it came to the trafficking, the traffickers themselves, uh, when I sat down with Veritas in July of 2021, there were eight people, and this thing just started. Uh, the first one I saw was in February 2021. But I've been on this program since like, I think 2015. So in six years, I never see one person trying to sponsor a child. 
Then all of a sudden, February 2021, I start seeing them about once every four weeks. So when you look at the size of people coming over, the, the very, very small criteria of the watch list, you can see just how, like, okay, this looks like there's a pattern. But also, it wasn't just one gang. These were gangs from MS-13, 18th Street Gang, and a, a, a Balkan organized crime group, which means the traffickers were coming from El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, Romania. So it's happening on a, a, a multitude of, of countries as well. So it's like, okay, this is clearly a concerted effort that they're going to be trying to utilizing. The DHS whistleblower said he doesn't believe the government is able to fix the problem with the asylum system by itself. I don't foresee fixes or, or changes um, until the whole system is going to be changing itself. So my, that's what my take is still, if you want it to be solved, you have to end it. And then that's going to create problems again, fine. Then you can fix that those too. But it's like, if you again, if you believe in government solutions, like they're going to give them to you, and those are usually never good. According to Variety magazine, Sound of Freedom is the first independent film to reach $100 million at the North American box office since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. Angel Studios on Wednesday announced international release dates for the film, covering 23 countries, including the UK, Australia, and much of Latin America. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. The TV producer says the new film Oppenheimer could be an important part of its filmmaker's legacy since it explores the ups and downs of life during World War II. For those who may be interested in the personal life of the renowned physicist, his former San Francisco Bay Area home is now up for sale. Two movies, Oppenheimer and Barbie, are currently the most talked about films. Tommy Habib, a TV host and producer, says Oppenheimer is much more serious compared to the other current box office hit. Christopher Nolan took this, this book and this story and, and really turned it into something amazing. I'm, I'm really, I got to tell you, um, it is, it's a difficult, it's difficult content, and, but it's engaging and it will keep you riveted at the, at the edge of your seat. I, I question sometimes you have to be careful using black and white, but they really, they really integrated this well in some of those uh, scenes where they brought in that elements of, of black and white and mixed color. Hubby believes the World War II era film will be a great part of Nolan's legacy. Nolan takes us on this, this amazing ride through this, this fellow's life. And we watched him hit some highs that were beyond belief. I mean, heroic highs and then hit some lows. Uh, and that's real life. So the important thing, and I think the takeaway, is that nobody's immune to, to being depressed or hitting these amazing heights in life. For those doing a double feature of Barbenheimer, he suggests watching Oppenheimer first, then Barbie, to leave the theater in a lighter mood. Julius Robert Oppenheimer was first drawn into politics during the rise of Adolf Hitler. Historians have said the father of the atomic bomb was secretly associated with the Communist Party, but there was no record of him ever joining one. For those curious about Oppenheimer's early life, his former home is on the market in Berkeley for about $1.5 million. Built in 1923, the Berkeley Hills home spans about 3,900 square feet. It consists of four oversized units, which includes one two-bed, one-bath, one one-bed, one one-bath, plus an office, and two studios with stunning bay views. Each unit has its own private balcony. If you have any news tips or feedback for our show, remember you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.
Good night.